0: When my wife and I first got married some 10 years ago, she argued with me today that it was more like 12, but uh, I assured her that it was only 10. 10 years ago, uh, we couldn't afford a TV package that included hundreds of channels. For a while, we couldn't even afford one of those digital receivers that would allow you to simply watch the local channels. Uh, We had a a TV, a small apartment, and all 10 seasons of the syndicated sitcom Friends on DVD. If you were to come over and visit uh, during that time of our lives, there was a 99.9% chance that one of those DVDs was playing. We'd start with the first season, we'd watch them all the way through to the 10th and final season, and after a couple of weeks, we'd start them all over again. That was 10 years ago. I'm glad to say that we can now afford a few more channels, and with the advent of Netflix and Amazon Prime, we're doing pretty well on options to watch. But in case there is nothing else to watch, or maybe we're just doing chores around the house on a Saturday, Friends is still our go-to show. Amanda and I know that show like the back of our hands, and I'm proud to say that I have a friend's quote for nearly every life situation. But over the last couple of months, I've uh, f- grown fond of a, of a new show. that's become one of my favorites. It's on the Science Channel entitled, How the Universe Works. Most people would probably find this show boring. It's comprised of a bunch of atheistic astronomers Giving their theories about the universe, theories on the formation of galaxies and stars and planets, black holes. And while I certainly disagree with most, if not all of their theories, I find the show fascinating. I'm fascinated at the mere size of the universe, the size of other planets, and how utterly small we are in comparison. For example, the Andromeda galaxy is 2.5 million light years away from Earth. It's actually the most distant thing a human can see with his naked eye. It consists of 100 billion suns. Each of those suns is larger than our own and yet According to the psalmist in Psalm 147, verse 4, He, that is God, determines the number of stars and gives all of them their names. We are far smaller than we would like to admit. And at the same time, our God is far greater than we typically realize. God is great. However, in 2007, Christopher Hitchens, a prominent British atheist, published a New York Times bestseller entitled, God is Not Great. Hitchens contends that organized religion is, quote, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism, tribalism, and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children, and that, accordingly, It ought to have a great deal on its conscience. Organized religion is one of Satan's best tools in directing people away from the true God. And while I affirm many of Hitchens' criticism about organized religion, it is quite clear to me that Hitchens has confused the false gods of the world with the living and true God of the Bible. Hitchens, like many of the atheistic astronomers on the TV show I so often watch, assumes that our universe came from nothing. However, if the creator of the universe, the God of the Bible, brought all of this into existence and holds it together by the sovereign word of his power, then he alone is great. The psalm we're looking at this morning testifies to the greatness of our God. But the psalm this morning also speaks to the graciousness of God and encourages us, small and feeble as we are, to draw near to Him in praise. I'd like to read it again for us this morning. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113 is the first of six psalms in a series called the Egyptian Hallel. Psalm 114 is actually the only one of them that speaks directly to the exodus from Egypt. But with this uh, theme of lifting the oppressed here found in our psalm this morning, the call to praise in Psalm 115, personal thanksgiving in Psalm 116, world vision in Psalm 117, and the celebratory procession in Psalm 118. This entire series is an appropriate reminder for us that the salvation that started in Egypt will indeed spread to the ends of the earth. It was common practice for Jews uh, to sing the first two of these Psalms in this series before the Passover meal. After the meal, they'd go on to sing the remaining four. That being said, there's a strong likelihood that Jesus and his apostles sang this very psalm in the upper room the night of his betrayal. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 113, can be broken down into two main sections. First is the psalmist's call to Praise. Second, are the causes or the reasons this psalmist sees for praising Him. So we're going to spend some time in the first three verses right now. Psalm 113, verses 1 to 3. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting The name of the Lord is to be praised. The psalmist exhorts us to praise the Lord three different times in the first verse alone. Anytime anybody repeats something that often, we should probably pay attention. But the psalmist's repetition here isn't superfluous. We often need reminding that praising the name of the Lord was the very reason that we were created. And while most of us in this room know at least on some level that we were created for it. Sometimes we neglect doing it apart from a Sunday morning. Heartfelt praise of God doesn't mean that we just go about our day saying praise the Lord all the time. No, genuine praise is most often a response to thinking deeply about who God is and what He has done as revealed in His Word. Praise by nature is somewhat spontaneous, but it can be cultivated by deliberately meditating on God's greatness and His glory. And so, if you're here this morning and you find yourself lacking in heartfelt praise of the Lord, it might be time to spend more time dwelling on Him as He has revealed to us in His Word. But our lack of praise might also be due to the fact that we're not enjoying God enough. C.S. Lewis says it like this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. This past June, I took our students to camp uh, in the Rocky Mountains, Uh, While we were there, I found myself captivated by the beauty of the mountains. They were magnificent. And I sent tons of pictures to my wife because, like the psalmist, I wanted to extol their beauty to her. My enjoyment of the mountains spontaneously overflowed into praise. Much in the same way, our enjoyment of who God is and what he has done should also erupt in genuine, heartfelt praise. But we need to ask ourselves, who exactly is the psalmist's calling to praise? According to verse 1, it's the servants of the Lord. Now, This phrase could refer to the entire nation of God's chosen people. It might have to do with the individuals who actually experienced God's redemption. There are times that this phrase, the servants of the Lord, is in reference to those priests who served God in the tabernacle, but more than likely, the psalmist has individual Israelites in mind here. However, we are under a new covenant. And according to 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we were all believers, priests, members of God's chosen people, and servants of the Lord. So this psalm is just as applicable for us today as it was when the psalmist wrote it. But being a servant of the Lord isn't something that you or I volunteer for. Volunteering to lead a connect group isn't the same thing as being a Servant of the Lord. Can you volunteer um, and serve the Lord at the same time? Absolutely, but being a servant of the Lord is something that all believers are by virtue of having been bought with the blood of Christ. And as servants, a major part of our service is the praise of His name. And the praise that we're to offer isn't just flattery or guesswork. Our praise should come from the overflow of love for the God who is revealed to us in his word. Not only does the psalmist repeat the phrase, praise the Lord, multiple times in the first three verses, but he repeats the object of that praise, the name of the Lord, multiple times as well. The name of the Lord here refers to all that God is and all that he has done in creation and redemption and if you're like me you find it easy to praise God for what he has done for you it's easy to praise him for the salvation that he's provided to you it's another thing to praise God simply for who he is and yet that is exactly what the psalmist is calling us to to praise the name of the Lord for all that he is The Psalms were written in Hebrew. We translate the Hebrew name for God or Lord as as Yahweh. It actually stems from the Hebrew verb meaning to be. And the only place in the Bible where God's name is explained is found in Exodus 3 verse 14. When God reveals himself to Moses, and Moses asks God, if the Israelites ask me who sent me, who should I tell him sent me? And God responds to Moses and says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. James Boyce points out that the story from Exodus reveals several important facts about God. First, he is an individual, not merely an abstract philosophic idea. Secondly, God is self-existent. Nothing caused him or brought him into being. Third, God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need angels or humans or anything else. Fourth, God is eternal. He has always been and he will always be. Fifth, God is unchangeable. He never differs from himself. In other words... We can trust that he is who he reveals himself to be. But this also means that God is inescapable. He will not go away and there is not a place that you can go that he won't be. If you choose to ignore him now, you will not be able to ignore him forever when you stand before him in eternity. Since we're in Exodus, if you want to flip over to Exodus chapters 33 and 34... We're going to stay here a bit longer. In Exodus 33 and 34, God allows Moses to see his goodness. Moses calls upon the name of the Lord, and God's goodness passes before him. And then in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says this about the God who passes before Moses. The Lord, the Lord When God reveals His name to Moses, it's centered around His sovereignty and His goodness. And while describing God's compassion, His grace, His mercy, His love, the Bible also mentions His justice in punishing the guilty. The point is is that praising the name of God would be easy if we just focused on our favorite attributes of Him. If all we do is praise God for His love and His grace, we are neglecting to praise Him in His entirety. In order to praise the name of God like we should, we have to also praise Him for His sovereignty and His justice. This means that when life doesn't go the way we planned, the servants of the Lord still praise His name. When the doctor comes back with tragic news, We praise him. And when a family member who has rejected the Lord passes away and now stands before him in judgment, we still praise his name because that is what we were created to do. You see, the danger in only praising God for our favorite attributes is that we end up praising a God who we've made up or redefined and not the God of the Bible And so the psalmist here is calling the servants of the Lord, those whom God has chosen and redeemed, to praise the name of the Lord in the fullness of who He is. But for the psalmist, the praise of the name of the Lord is to take place at all times, in all places, not just on Sunday mornings. Flip back over to Psalm 113. Verses 2 and 3, the psalmist says this, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. God's name is to be praised by His servants, not just in Israel, but over all the earth. Flip with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 says this, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. At all times, in all places, God wants his name to be praised by those whom he has chosen and redeemed. And now that the psalmist has made clear the call to praise, who it is, you and I who are to praise him, the object of that praise, meaning the name of the Lord, and the time and place for that praise, he moves on to his two reasons on why we should praise the Lord. Verses 4 through 9 list two main reasons why God is to be praised. Because he is great and because he is gracious. God is great, and the Bible attests to his greatness a lot. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands. Like fine dust. If you're in Isaiah 40, you can drop down a couple more verses, verses 25 and 26. He says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Go back to our psalm this morning, verses four and five it says, "The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? God's glory is far above the heavens." But let me try to put this into perspective for us given our current advances in technology it would take us about 3 days to reach the moon if we were to ever to send some unfortunate soul to mars it would take about 300 days it would take about 40 years to reach the end of our own solar system outside of that it would take about 80,000 years to reach the next closest Star. To reach the nearest galaxy, it would take approximately 750 million years. And if we were to ever reach the end of our known universe, it would take approximately 225 trillion years. And yet, according to the Bible, God's glory is far above all of that. And when the Bible speaks of God's greatness in these terms, it's in reference to His sovereignty. Because God rules over the entirety of His creation, which means that nothing happens apart from His sovereign will or permission. Flip over to Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Jeremiah says this, Ah, Lord God, It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in Ephesians 3 verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God is great and his servants, you and I, are to praise him for his greatness. But his greatness is just a small part of who he is. If his greatness were all that he revealed about himself to us, it would be hard for us to want to draw near to him. When I was in college at SVU working on my undergrad, I was friends with a lot of the football team. Uh, From my estimation, most of the football team seemed to be comprised from guys that they had recruited from Compton. I don't know why SBU spent so much time recruiting from the roughest parts of LA, but they did, and most of them were my friends. Needless to say, a few of my friends were a little rough around the edges. They would likely terrify most people in Southwest Missouri. One of my friends, one time, I'm not kidding, they caught him on security camera, literally picked up a snack machine and walked it to his room. When uh, Meyer Hall realized their snack machine was gone, they went to the security camera and saw one of my friends walking it to his room, and he had dumped all the snacks out. I guess, come to think of it, maybe these are the exact type of guys that you would want on your football team. But as scary as they were, as intimidating as they were, my friends from Compton were even scared of SBU's newest recruit. He was a 35-year-old beast of a man. He appeared to me to have been chiseled from stone and he looked to be very angry all the time. He had spent his time between high school and when I met him in prison. Uh, When he got out of prison, his old high school football coach had become an assistant at SBU and given SBU's current recruiting practices He was a perfect fit. (laughs) He still had some eligibility left, and so he came up to SVU, and one day in the cafeteria, my buddies from Compton dared me to go talk to him. i had heard the rumors. I knew that even they were scared of him, and so like the naive white kid I was, I obliged. Come to find out over a very nice conversation... This guy was like super chill. In spite of his rough exterior and the fact that he could crush me with his pinky, he was one of the nicest and most caring people I'd ever met. Had I only focused on this guy's obvious greatness in comparison to myself, I would have never found out that he was actually a really nice guy. And that's kind of what the psalmist is saying here. That God is great beyond our imagination, but there is a graciousness about Him that should cause us to draw near to Him. And thankfully, God has also revealed these aspects of Himself to us in His Word. Psalm 113, verses 5 through 9. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and sits them with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. God is great, yet he is also unbelievably gracious. H.C. Leupold in his exposition of Psalms says this, He has done two things which seem to make the other impossible. He has first taken a seat so high that no one can match Him. Yet has regard for the lowliest of low in that He looks down so far. God is so far above us in His glory that He actually has to stoop down to look at us. And yet, it is we, the lowliest of the low, in which he is gracious and merciful toward. And it's in verses 7 and 8 that we see the great sweeping motion of the gospel. God's saving work sweeps down from the dust and up to the throne of princes, from the grave to the throne of God. God is not in the business of just lifting up beggars from the ash heap and seating them with princes. God reaches down through the ash heap of sin and redeems us to sit with the exalted Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's saving work always starts from above in a downward and upward sweeping motion. And here's why we know that from this text. Verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 113 is nearly identical to the song of Hannah recorded in 1 Samuel 2 verse 8. Hannah was a barren woman who cried out to God in desperation. In response to her cry, the Lord gave her Samuel, whom God would later use as a great prophet. The song recorded in First Samuel records Hannah's praise of God for casting down the proud, but lifting up the needy and helpless who cry out to him. And it's in the deliberate anticlimax of verse 9 that the psalmist gives us the takeaway for our text this morning. In Hannah's day, it was seen as a disgrace or curse to be childless. There weren't any fertility drugs. There weren't any medical specialists that one could go to to help conceive. The only thing a barren woman could do was to cry out to God. And this begs the question in my mind, why are there so many accounts of barren women in the Bible? When God calls Abraham and tells him that he's going to bless him and his descendants, he does so through a barren wife. The same thing happens to Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And then again to Isaac's son Jacob and his wife Rachel. All of these families are vital to the lineage of Christ, and yet they were initially unable to conceive. So why is that? Why did God allow them to go childless for so long? Why did God allow these women to live in disgrace for most of their adult lives? I think He does it to show us that salvation is not something that we can earn or achieve on our own. Salvation is totally and completely from the Lord. God doesn't save those who are righteous or those who are strong. No, God saves the lowliest of the low. Sinners who are weak in and of themselves, but also who cry out to God for mercy. God saves those who have come to the end of themselves and the end of their own strength. Sinners like you and me who are in the ash heap Of life, unable to save ourselves. And when He alone is responsible for salvation, He alone gets the glory. Because He alone is great. But He is also unbelievably gracious and mighty to save the poor and the helpless. God's greatness. And His grace were never more evident than when He sent His own Son into our sinful world. Christ took on the form of a servant, was obedient to death on the cross to pay for our sins. And someday soon, because of the resurrection, He's going to come back in another great sweeping motion to sit us next to Him on His throne forever. My plea to you is that you would cry out to God to save you from your sin. That you would cry out to Him when you're in the ash heap of life. That you would cry out to Him in your spiritual barrenness, that He may raise you up and fill you with His joy. Church, would you dwell deeply on who He is. He is both unimaginably gracious and undeniably great. And we are to praise his name from this time forth forevermore.